I love and respect Pastor Aaron Adame. He's a dear friend of mine, and he is a good and gifted Bible teacher. And I'm excited to sit under his preaching this morning and have my soul nourished. And I know all of our souls are going to be nourished. So I'm going to invite Aaron Adame up here and let's give him a warm welcome as he comes up and brings God's word. I've got a Daniel story. <laughs> you want to hear it? No, I, he <clears throat> took a little of my intro there. I was going to talk about how Daniel, yeah, my, my earliest memory is walking into a men's Bible fellowship. Uh, I was starving for friends and to know the Bible. And Daniel was in there as a guy my age. Everybody else was much older. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, it was wonderful to have somebody there around my age and uh, like he said, just recently come to Christ himself, but knew a lot more about the Bible than I did at that time, for sure. So it was wonderful to have a friend in Christ at that time in my life. But so, shortly thereafter, we used to hang out a lot, and my, this is my story. We, we'd go to the beach. This was before I knew my wife, before he knew his wife, and we reveled in our singleness at that time. We could do whatever we wanted to. But we would go to the beach, and we would dive in the waves, and, and there was a different gesture that we would do back then, Daniel especially, and it, it went like this. <laughs> he would come out of the water and just like, you know, whip his hair that he used to have. Uh, yeah, he still does it, and he just pretends like it's there, just he can't, it's in his neck, you know? No, I appreciate Daniel. I appreciate this church. You may not know this. You probably won't unless I tell you. Uh, there's a church in Cami that prays for you. Um, as often as we have a list of churches that we pray for. And this morning we prayed for your church and uh, Pastor Rob, who we are very thankful we acquired from you, Rob McCartney. Um, he is now an associate pastor with me and he's been that way for the last year and a half. And so anyway, there's a great partnership here between our church and your church. So very, very grateful for you. Grateful for Ryan and Taylor too. Uh, I've known Taylor since she was in high school. We went to New Zealand together on a mission trip. And one thing I can say about Ryan real quick is I don't know if I've ever seen somebody take such bold steps of faith as Ryan. Uh, I, I mean, people hesitate. You know, they, they see the line and they're like, oh man, if I cross that line, what's the risk? Ryan's like jumping over the line because his trust in God and his character and his provision and those things. So I, I admire the faith that's in Ryan, and obviously in his wife, Taylor, as well. Uh, those are just a couple announcements real quick. Like Daniel said, we're going to be in a different book. We're going to be in Psalm 90 this morning. Psalm 90. If you're taking notes, the title is About Time. So we're going to talk about time um, from Psalm 90. We're going to read in a second, uh, but as you're turning there, because you're in 2 Samuel, we're moving into a new genre. I know it helps me to reorient myself to where I'm at. And so if I can just make a couple quick comments about this psalm to orient our minds to the language and the content and intent of the psalm. Let me just say a couple things. First, this psalm is unique in the book of Psalms because it was the, it's the only one penned by Moses, um, which makes it one of, if not the oldest psalm in the collection of Psalms. But secondly, and maybe more importantly, most scholars agree the timing of when Moses wrote this Psalm was when they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. God had delivered 
his people from Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He had given them his law on Mount Sinai. He had shown them in various ways and capacities, uh, both to Israel and to Moses directly, his, what I'll say, intense glory to his people. And then he reaffirmed his covenant over and over and over again to them. The covenant that he had made with their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. After all those things that God had done, all those things that God had said to them and promised to them, they disobeyed still. And in Numbers 14, we see God's response. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? What a sad, tragic, I think maybe hopefully convicting scene for some. In light of all the things that God had done, they continued to rebel. But then after this statement, he then said, essentially, you know what? I think I'm just done with this people, Israel. But then Moses comes in the mediator between God and his people. And he does that. He intercedes for them. And he he does it by asking God. He says, remember, God, your promises that you made to your people. And then he declares back to God, not just your promises, but remember your name. Remember who you are. And he says this, the Lord is slow to anger, in verse 18, and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. In other words, By faith, Moses says to God, I know who you are, and I know what you said, I know what you've promised, and I know what you have done, therefore you cannot destroy your people or let them fail now, despite all of the things that they have done. And of course, in response to this, God does show them mercy. He did not utterly cut them off from him. Instead, though, God still judged that generation by preventing them to enter into that promised land that he had made and instead caused them to wander somewhat aimlessly for 40 years until that generation died off. And it was during those 40 years, those years of living in regret for past mistakes, those years of living with the knowledge that time is running out, on them, on that generation, and it was in those seemingly hopeless years that Moses wrote this psalm. It was during a season when Moses had a lot of time to think about time, and it was a time, and and, and so this psalm is the fruit of that meditation of Moses on time, and again, not only did he have a lot of time to think about time, but the fruit is that he thought about how short time really is. Even though he had a lot of it, he realized how little time he had. And the, and the point he wanted to make to God's people in this psalm, which is the same point that we're going to see today, is this. Time is precious, yet the Lord is gracious. Time is precious, yet the Lord is gracious. If you're able, willing, will you please stand with me? We're going to read Psalm 90 together. A prayer of Moses, I'm reading out of the ESV. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 
You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. You, I'm sorry, I have a word I need to say. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. <clears throat> My kids are at that age, nine and seven and a half. My kids are at that age where the tooth fairy has become a regular visitor in my house, which is strange because every time she comes over, I'm losing money. And either she's a thief or you get the point. It's a strange coincidence. But whether my kids get money from the tooth fairy or whether they get it from a, a relative or a friend or like my daughter found some money on the curb the other day and then told us when she was in the car... However they get a few dollars in their pocket, every time they bug me, Dad, take me to the dollar store. And I can't stand the dollar store. <laughs> every time we go, the conversation goes like this as we're getting out of the car. All right, girls, you only have a few dollars to spend. Make sure you think hard about what you want. And as most of you know, that's a difficult thing for kids to do, but they're learning. And more often, we walk out of that place with them having wasted a few dollars or a few of my dollars extra and wishing they had gotten something else. But you don't have to be a kid to have a similar experience of buyer's remorse or to know that money is precious and spending it wisely is difficult to do and that often we make poor choices with our money and wish that we had spent it better. But have you considered how often we do the same thing with an even more valuable resource and commodity? And of course, I'm talking about that resource of time. It's been said that time is the most valuable commodity on earth because it is the only resource that we spend but can never get more of. Yet still, much like the many resources at our disposal, our tendency is to waste time away with trivial things, only to get to the end, and we wish for two things, for more time, or that we could go back in time and redo it all over again. Isn't that exactly what we think when we get to the end of that resource? So, given the context 
that the people of Israel were in. It makes sense why Moses would write and think about and pray about time in this way, considering the circumstances that led them into this place. They were spiritually bankrupt, relationally broken, doomed by their poor choices, and all of this running out of time. And I could imagine that God's people had two wishes in that moment, that they had more time, more than 40 years, or that they could go back in time and spend the time that they did have better than they did. And perhaps that resonates with some of you. I know that that does with me for sure. We're going to discuss and see in this psalm um, that though that's where our minds often go, uh, and that's likely where the minds of all of the Israelites were at that time, we'll see this is not where Moses' mind ended up going. He did not lock himself into these two choices only. He did not necessarily want more time or to go back in time. He reveals here there's actually a third option, which is to recognize that though, yes, time is precious, God is still gracious. God is still gracious. And because God is gracious in the context of time, he allows and enables us to redeem the time that we do still have, both for our own good and for his glory. In fact, this was a reflection that the Apostle Paul had and encouraged the church in Ephesus with when he wrote this in chapter 5. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, a theme in, in our psalm, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. I think Paul's devotion that morning might have been in Psalm 90. But Paul certainly knew the value of time. And he had plenty of time himself to think about time through his many imprisonments and through his long missionary journeys from one city to the next. And I'm sure that Paul the Apostle also felt that tension that we all do of wishing we had more time or that he could go back in time having himself wasted so much time prior to his conversion to Jesus by pursuing things that don't matter for eternity. Uh, I have this sort of, I think I've heard this quote before about how the greatest fear is not uh, failing in something, but succeeding in things that don't matter. And then getting to the end and realizing I've wasted time. That, I think, was Paul. Um, and he wanted more time because he wanted to keep serving the Lord, right? Yes, he wanted to go be with Jesus, but he also said, man, if I stay here, it's profitable for you. I'm in this tension. What do I do? However, what this tension did in Paul's life actually worked in the positive for him after that reflection. After all, he knew he couldn't go back in time, and he also knew that time was running out, and what he did, or what that did for him, was it helped him to redeem the time that he still had. And that's exactly what he did. Through his intense pursuit of Jesus and him alone, this is what his primary focus was, and then to do that by making him known to the nations. Even Moses, a man who had spent much of his life living in palaces and in Egypt and then decades in a desert and then was subject to live the rest of his life, the remaining days wandering in that desert uh, with God's people, he knew all too, all too well the value and frailty of time. Thus he writes the word of this psalm. So what does he say about time 
in Psalm 90. Well, let's just look a little closer at the text and see if it can't help us get there. Uh, If you have a Bible, it, it would be good for you to be looking at it with me. There's three divisions in this psalm. I think probably you can see it pretty clearly. The first two, let me just say, are kind of a downer. They, they bring us to the front of the reality of the situation. But by the third stanza, he brings us to the hopeful conclusion. But we're going to see his logic here. The first section is in verses 1 to 6, and it's a section I'm calling God's eternality and our mortality. Sorry if that's a mouthful, if you're taking notes. God's eternality and our mortality. I'm not going to read it again, so if you want to just scan it, <coughs> just by a simple gla- glance, the first six Verses, what we are immediately confronted with is this emphasis on the connection via comparison to human morality and, and our, the brevity of life over and against God's eternality. On the one hand, Moses acknowledges that the God who has been their dwelling place, even during their pilgrimage and their sojourning in Egypt and now they're wandering in the wilderness is the same God who existed before anything else existed in the world. Before Genesis 1, before the first verse in our Bible, where it says, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth before time, before space, when nothing was there, the mountains, the ocean, not the stars in the sky, not anything. God was there from everlasting to everlasting. God existed. This is where his mind goes starts with an adoration of God, and it's positioned at the top in the psalm as that foundational principle. This is who you are, but it serves as a point of showing direct contrast to the passing of each generation, right? Each generation. You're everlasting, but each generation is passing. As one generation is born, another one dies off, and that's the cycle. That's the human rhythm where God's is from everlasting to everlasting. Every human being is brought into this world possessing two uncontrollable things and realities, a beginning and an end. Meanwhile, God has neither of those things. And this is what Moses is reflecting on and thinking about. And then he continues into verse 4 to show how time is, is nothing to God. He says, for him, a thousand years is like just a few hours, like one watch in the night, which would have been like three, three to four hours. In other words, what would otherwise quite literally be a a millennium to us in our history is nothing to God. And yet, in contrast to God's relationship to time, our lives are like what? They're like a dream. Here, gone, forgotten. Man, what a downer (laughs) Moses was in at this point. And like many other places in Scripture, Moses compares the brevity of human life on earth to the span of grass. We're like grass that disappears. My wife and I were now in Oregon where it's like always green, constantly. And we flew down here and we're just amazed how green it is because of all the rain that you have. But when I left here, it was always brown, just constantly brown. And that's what he's saying. He's like, it's like the grass. We're just here and then we're gone. And in verse 3, he goes on, not only to talk about human mortality and, and relation to time, but human substance Look at what he says. He says, we return to dust. And again, our minds go back to Genesis, where it says that God made man from the earth, and how after Adam sinned in the garden, God cursed Adam. And he said, from dust that you were made, you shall also return to that. 
And with all of this comparing and contrasting us to God, it makes us wonder, Moses, what is your point? Where are you going with this? What are you getting at? And the answer, of course, is the first part of that main idea. Life is precious. Life is precious. It's fragile. Right when you think you're strong and death seems so distant from you, you're reminded all around us, even as Daniel was praying this morning, that dust is all we're made of. Time is so short. And yet we're also reminded in this section of the eternal nature of God, even as Daniel was praying about that. He is full of glory and wonder and power. And though we are subject to time, God is outside of that time. And he controls it as well. The one who made everything, including space and time, he rules over all of those things. And how in his grace, he alone, this is where Moses is going, is able to make what little time we do have on this earth and multiply it like those the fish and the loaves, and just multiply what little things we have and use it for our good and his glory. Life is precious, but God is gracious. And it's in this tension that Moses is living in this moment and that we also must wrestle with in this first section. In one sense, in one sense, we as Christians should not be bothered by the fact that God is totally different from us, right? We're actually happy about that that God is very different from us. It should encourage us greatly. The truth of that doctrine, right, our our mortality and his eternality, the doctrinal truth is not what bothers us. It's the painful reality of our experience of it, right? That's what he's sort of bothered by here. And, And it's a reminder to us that this was never God's intent. It was human sin and rebellion that brought weakness and death into the world. And it is our experience of that consequence that makes it so difficult. In fact, that's exactly where he goes next. It's like Moses is thinking about it and then going, how did all this happen? And then he goes into the next set of verses, verses 7 to 11. He doesn't just jump immediately to the good news. He's got to reflect on more things at this point. Remember, he had 40 years to think about it. And his next thought goes to this, the point of this section I'm calling God's justice and our sinfulness. In that section there, verses 7 to 11 that we read earlier, much like in the earlier section where he's comparing God's eternality and our mortality, here we see a contrast again. But now it's between God's justice, his perfection, his holiness, his righteous wrath against sin in light of our sinfulness. Again, in the last section, the frustrating thought is, why is life so short? We want more time. Why is life so short? Whereas in this second section, the frustrating thought is, why is life so hard? Why is it so difficult? And the answer, of course, is because of the natural consequences of sin, coupled with God's just antagonism against sin because of his holiness. Again, our minds drift back to the early parts of of Genesis when God told Adam and Eve, don't eat of the fruit of the one tree in the garden. And he told them that if they did, there would be this great and massive consequence. Certain death would enter into the world. And of course, we know the story. They did eat. And as a result, the refrain of death just becomes this chorus all throughout the book of Genesis. So-and-so was born. They lived X number of years, and then they died, and then they died, and then they died. And it was just this constant reminder, just a few words 
that tells us, oh my gosh, the consequence of that early sin is already coming into the story and the rhythm of human life. Sin is why life is so short, and sin is why life is full of toil and trouble. Not because God made it this way, but because our sin fractured God's perfect world when mankind attempted to live life on their own, apart from God. Of course, my reflection is this. Genesis 1 through 3 is essential to understand the origin of all of this, why life is short, why life is hard. But, but Moses didn't need to go back that far in his history to see why his people were suffering for 40 years. He was there when they rebelled against God. He was there when they broke his law, when he came down from the mountain and saw what they were doing. He was there. He saw it. He understood why the consequences were there. He watched them rebel. And, and then he says there, man, if you, if you people get to see the ripe old age of 70 or 80, man, that's, that's an amazing blessing. But you're going to miss out. You're going to miss out on the promises because of that. And they probably wondered, man, what good is my life now? What good is my life now? What purpose or hope do I have? And, and this is what we wonder oftentimes as well. We see brokenness all around us, and we also wonder those things. Um, but we also know, man, what Adam and Eve did in the beginning when they rebelled, people continue to do those same things today. And they continue to experience the consequences of those things. But again, life is difficult. And thankfully, this psalm gives the solution to those things. It doesn't stop there. But that reflection leads him somewhere else in that final section of 12 to 17, a section I'm calling God's ability and our dependency. Verse 12 there, if you just look at it real quick with me, verse 12 functions as the climactic moment for Moses in this psalm. He writes this, so in light of everything I just said, that you are immortal, and, and, and we are not. You're, you're from everlasting to everlasting, and we have a beginning and an end. Each generation passes away, and life is so hard, and it's a just judgment of all of our actions. So then, in light of all of those things, teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. In other words, we can't, if we can't get time back, give us wisdom instead. Give us wisdom instead. Wisdom on how to live with the time that we still have. Wisdom, uh, I heard a, a good definition one time, is the skill of living according to God's wor word amidst a broken world. Wisdom is skill in living according to God's word amidst a broken world. And, and I say this verse functions as the climax of the story uh, of this psalm because it there's other imperatives or other petitions that he's going to say, but it, they all hinge off of this one petition, to give wisdom. It's what he wants for himself. It's what he wants for all of God's people as they wander in the woods together, as they live between this tension of before and then what is to come. And how do they get it? Well, simply put, they get it from God, right? We know from James that all wisdom comes from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. He's asking God to please give them wisdom. So we know that wisdom comes from God. But more specifically in the psalm, he says it comes by counting. It comes by counting. It's cliche, but it's true. If you want your life to count, it starts when you count the days of your life. This is Moses's 
request, his supplication, his petition. This is what he's asking God for. That in light of who you are, unbound by time, unbound by space or, or, or sin, and in light of who we are, mortals, made of dust, who toil under human fallenness, God, we need your wisdom. Wisdom that will help us with our use of time. But even as he prays for these things, notice what he requests in verse 13. After that, he still says, return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. He wanted wisdom, uh, to, <coughs> which is that skill of living life in a fallen world, with the time that they had. However, he also knew there's, a, there's another solution, which would be just, God, will you just come down? Will you just come and be with us? Save us from our present situation. And of course, uh, the good news is that we know that that day did eventually come for them. It came for them in unique ways in their history, uh, but it came in really unique ways when God came himself to his people in the person of Jesus. He entered time and he entered space to experience what we experience on a daily basis. For generations, God's people waited to see their deliver. They prayed, how long, O Lord? They longed for that day when God, the one who had been their dwelling place from everlasting to everlasting, that he would truly dwell with them. And that day, of course, came. This is what the gospel writers reflect on when Jesus came into the world. But even with the good news of Christ's arrival, Another truth remains, we're still waiting, aren't we? We here today, we are still waiting. The time between Christ's first coming and his second. Though Jesus came once, his work in the world is not over. And though we see more clearly what Moses only saw by faith, we still see a broken and fallen world out there, and we still live in this flesh. And so we, like them, cry out too, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. It's only natural for us to want more time or to wish we could go back in time and relive the, the days that we had, but it ought to be the desire of God's people to want wisdom, but also just to want God to return even more because the psalmist also reflects, for one day in his courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. So he prays for wisdom. He prays for God's return as an overflow of that. And then he prays in verse 14 that even in the midst of their waiting, I love this, he says, he asks for God to satisfy them and to make them glad. To satisfy them and make them glad. Just as he has satisfied them all their days with the heavenly bread that came down on the ground every morning and fed God's people as they fled from Egypt. Interestingly, God fed them that, that entire time in that way. Every day, new morning mercies. He was satisfying them physically and even spiritually in that way. And just as he was satisfying them with food in the morning, he prayed for God to satisfy them with his love. What could be better to know the fact that even as you wander and as you wait, and even as you are provided for, there's no better word to hear than God is present with you. It's one thing to hand someone a meal and then walk away. But God was there, present with them. And that's what he's saying. God, will you be here satisfying us with your love and your grace? And he also asks that as many days as God had poured out his loving discipline on them, 
that he would also make them glad even more days. This is just another way of God redeeming the time. What you guys, you know, messed up, God is able to return back through his grace a hundredfold and redeem all of that time. This is something that only God can do. Of course, Moses knew that. And even though life seemed to be going nowhere for many, in reflecting on God, he was saying, man, God, you can make this joyful. And I thought about that for us. When life is taking the joy away from you, he can bring you joy in the midst of those things. When work is hard, when relationships are difficult, when you feel like there's circumstances that are outside of your control, and, and they are all of the time, but when we're made more aware of it, and it wants to take our joy away. We remember our, our, our joy is not in those things, but in God who is with us. And he, mo- he prays, God, will you satisfy us? And then he has one more request. Because he knew that God wasn't done with his people. He knew that God had more work to do. And so he prays, hey, God, even as we're waiting, even as we're learning wisdom, even as we're experiencing your presence with us in our wandering He then says this cool thing, God, will you establish our work? The things that we're doing here now, even in this really interesting space and time in their history, will you establish that work that that it might continue on for generations and generations? Again, when life seems so short and full of trouble, it seems as if life is pointless and fruitless. And maybe it seems like whatever we're doing in this season doesn't matter for eternity Here's the hope that we have. God can make those things count for future generations. The fact is, to some degree, we all want our life to have an impact, to matter. If you're older, you start to think about the kind of legacy that you're leaving behind. If you're younger, you think about what do you want to devote your life to that might make an impact in someone's life for the gospel or for God's kingdom. But the truth is, nothing really lasts except that which God gives a lasting impact to. And so we pray, as Moses prayed, that he would establish the work of our hands, that this church, that he would establish the work of what you guys are doing here in this community. And and then as you leave this place and go into the spheres of influence that that you're in, that he would establish that work in your families and and in your neighbors and those discipling conversations We can do all of the things, but if God isn't there doing it, then it doesn't matter. But if God is there doing it, man, it doesn't matter what we bring to the table to some degree. He can make those things flourish, and that is so hopeful. Of course, none of this is possible apart from faith in the God who is from everlasting to everlasting, the one who created the world in the beginning, the one who then saved the world at the appointed time when he sent his one and only son into the world, the one who is coming again to restore and to redeem finally and fully. And it is only by faith in him that any of this is possible. If you believe, this is your hope. If you don't believe, this is yet to be your hope. My hope is that you would believe in the one who sent his son, the one who made the world, the one who made you, and the one who Again, sent his son in order to purchase and redeem you, that he might be with you forever. Isn't that an amazing truth? So in closing, life is precious. Life is precious, but God is gracious. Yes, there are those moments when mortality is rubbed into our faces, but our response 
ought not to drift to wishful thinking about more time or that we can go back in time, but to prayerful petition in search of God's wisdom, exercising faith in the God who is from everlasting to everlasting. Why don't we pray together?